Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Welcome to the podcast, Ronnie. Well, thank you, Jason. Your book is American Metaphysical Religion esoteric and mystical traditions of the new world. Tell us about it. Well, when you ask that question, do you mean content or the origin of the book or the content, the, the general, the overview of the book? It's uh, you have some, you've touched on many topics in this, but the, the general pitch on your book. Um, it's four centuries of, of, American esotericism, beginning with an exploration of the indigenous traditions, and then coming up through the time of the trappers and colonization all the way up into the present times. It's based on the most recent research in a relatively new field of academia, where the title comes from. It's referred to as American metaphysical religion, with the M and the R of metaphysical religion usually small. Uh, so I wanted to survey all of this new research and make it available to people who might not otherwise know that it was there or have access to it. Got it. So it brings up a lot of questions. The first one I'm going to ask, and I want to go through and, and touch on the major periods of American metaphysical history. But the first thing I want to ask is, is there something special about America that is, that puts it apart in terms of experimental religion from the rest of the world? Um, whether that's the, the fact that it's a melting pot, the indigenous influence, the, um, the fact that it was religious, uh, you know, cultists that were kicked out of Europe that came here to found it. What is your take on that? It's an interesting question. I think it's a, it's a matter of degrees because I, I believe there are other nations that have been and continue to be religious melting pots. Um, of, of a significant number of, of spiritual traditions. I do think that America is unique in the sense that, that everyone that arrived here, even the indigenous people, did not really originate here, apparently. At least that's what the research seems to be showing so far. And, and those that came here, as you just pointed out, were often fleeing um, governments or, or traditions that they found to be somehow blocking the truth instead of helping them find it. Also in America, because people were able to go off into the wilderness and start new communities, 
there was more of a willingness to, to go off somewhere where you could be yourself. And there's a new book actually out by Catherine Albanese, who's one of the academics who's really laid the groundwork for this field of study. And uh, it's, her book is about the pursuit of happiness and how, in a sense, in a very real sense, it has defined a new approach to religion that could be described as American. So when you say that, I think of the kind of Tony Robbins, uh, uh, prosperity gospel, or, uh, what's that guy's name? Joel Osteen type approach. Is that kind of what you're talking about? I think that that includes it, but it's much broader than that. It includes all the various traditions of, uh, sort of do it yourself, um, get in harmony with nature or divinity, pull yourself up by your bolts, by your, by your bootstraps and, and make a better life for yourself, uh, philosophies. And so it, it can comprise anything from, from magical, uh, practice to, uh, Christian evangelical prosperity gospel. Mm. But the idea being that rather than the real traditional patriarchal, um, monotheism idea of life as being challenging and filled with traps and suffering. And certainly these traditions have also had their ecstatic traditions that we're, we're, we're seeking to find a, a different approach to living life and even millennial kinds of approaches where the belief came about um, often practiced in America that paradise was here now, but we had not recognized it. Um, and I think in America, the, that that kind of wishful thinking on a level you might call it, or, or at least maybe that's like on one side of it. On the other side of it, it is a laudable and honorable um, independent approach to finding what speaks to you spiritually, evolving yourself and achieving the kind of life and community that that is desired. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, America is very much a place where you know, you have to make your own way by hook or by crook. And I think any advantage people can get, they will take. And so, of course, they're going to, I guess, on one hand, look to metaphysics, possibly more practically than other places in the world. But also, you know, I think in America, the onus is on everybody to um, determine their own, their own truth in a way. I think that's true. I, I think that there's a, a split in the country that was there from the earliest colonial times between the esoteric side, which almost has existed as a shadow for America, but has been very influential, very popular. Um, it arrived here with the earliest colonists. And when you consider something like uh, the example of John Winthrop at the Massachusetts Bay Colony being the first governor and the, the you know real force and, and pilgrim politics and religiosity. And then his son, John Winthrop the Younger, is, is putting D's monus hieroglyphics <laughs> uh, on, his, on his crates that are being shipped to America, many of which have books that once belonged to John D in them, and then eventually goes on to be the governor, the first governor of uh, Connecticut colony and, and a famous alchemist of the time who put to work Rosicrucian principles in many ways, even though when he went to Europe looking for Rosicrucians, he didn't find any. So here, even at the heart of this first American pilgrim colony, we find a, a, an esotericist who goes off to create a, a in territory where there's more freedom for that kind of thing. 
and also became a famous doctor, more or less in the Paracelsian tradition in the area. Well, let's start off there then, and actually mainly because this is the part that interests me the most. The the influence of Rosicrucianism and the Western esoteric tradition on, I was going to say, the formation of America and its ideals, but possibly even its colonization, if you want to talk about that. That is super interesting to me. Oh, okay. Well, I've got some great news today, which shows (laughs) that uh, a book that I just finished that has the tentative title, Rosicrucian Origins in Context, Um, I think Inner Traditions is going to buy it. Great. So that will be coming out. Um, I my take on it, uh, again based on on the latest research, is that I do think it was extremely influential. And I, my my take on it is that what we're dealing with, however, is not so much esoteric societies of of initiated masters in the beginning. I I really wonder. I, mean, I don't know if we'll ever know the origin of the manifestos, who really wrote them and those kinds of questions and who are really the quote unquote Rosicrucians. Even defining Rosicrucian is so difficult because for many, it's a it's a name that is taken up or is used to accuse someone else or to praise someone else. Uh, the idea that, that a Rosicrucian is some sort of a special, unique sort of an individual flies in the face of the people who were influenced by Rosicrucianism and um, in a way may be said to represent it. That So, for instance, again, going back to John Winthrop the Younger, <clears throat> he wanted to be a Rosicrucian. He went looking for Rosicrucians. He couldn't find any. And then he decided to apply the principles in his own life. And so he healed people for free where he could. He provided medicines. He organized a, a small army of nurses who he trained to diagnose and to dispense different medicines that he had in different colored packets. And he was very concerned with protecting the weak and and forwarding knowledge and really applying the ideas in the manifestos to governing the territory as best he could. So is he a Rosicrucian? I I would argue that that he is, that, that he by by embodying these ideals, he becomes that, even if he didn't have the official diploma of initiation, like somebody like Sigismund Backstrom had one. But but we don't. what does that mean anyway? Is it a Freemasonic society that gave him that diploma of initiation? We don't know. And so when I look at Andre, the young Andre, who may have, have been involved or have even authored these things, I see somebody who reminds me of of almost like people like Ginsburg and Kerouac and Guy Debord, who was influenced by the Rosicrucians, who are young, filled with passion. I think that they were they were sort of drunk on on Campanella and on all the 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 ideas that were flying around in the wake of D and Bruno. And and also, I think that the impending marriage and then the marriage of England and the Palatinate with Frederick and Elizabeth had people really thinking that there was the possibility to have a Protestant Holy Roman Emperor and break the power of the Roman Catholic Church once and for all. And so in a college surrounded by esotericists who were mentoring him, this this work that he later called a libidium, a satire or a lampoon, comes together. And in, and in some ways, it strikes me as this combination of political pamphlet, it would have fit into almost some of it into the 1960s with the way that it's attacking 
uh, authority and, and predicting a new age and, and, and it's going to be built on all the best of humanity and science. And it's speaking this sort of double language that leaves us wondering, is it apocalyptic like so much of, of Rosicrucian mysticism and of, of even Christianity at the time was? Or is this apocalyptic language simply a way of talking about revolutionary political concepts like getting rid of the Pope and, and not being so blatant about it that you were, you were attracting big trouble? I think the book was basically, the Fama was meant to inspire people in their unique corners of, the, of their world to take up the Universal Reformation. I think that there were many people around who were reading the same books, were reading Agrippa, and were, were reading, the, they were, the Hermetic tradition was blossoming in a sense at this time, and Ficino was being read again. And I think that, that it was, all of a sudden this, this anonymous book comes about, you might see it first in manuscript, and you're going to say, that's me. That's this is my ilk. I'm one of whatever they are. I'm this because this is the stuff I believe. I do these things. I read these books. I know what they're talking about. And I think the intention was that one should turn around in their own town, in their own world, and and put these principles to work the way that John Winthrop the Younger did. But when instead the reactions went from uh, you know they're the devil's Jesuits and and uh, the Paris scare, the panic when the placards went up there about Rosicrucians being in town. And then on the other hand, this, this sort of uh, orgy of, of publications defending and detracting them and people saying, me, I want to be a member. And the, the impact was very obviously very disappointing to the people that were behind the idea. And, and then at the same time, the failure at the Battle of White Mountain of the dreams of a Protestant emperor and of, of the, the, the realization that, in fact, quite the opposite was about to happen, that there was going to be a major war and that there would be no support, most likely, from King James and that the German princes weren't going to come to Frederick's aid as they, had, they were supposed to. And the French so deftly played the politics there by reminding everybody, there's no problem with any of you. Frederick's the guy that became king of Bohemia, and he should not have done that the emperor was king of Bohemia. And so all of a sudden the spirits crash. And you see in Waite's Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross where he says, says, what happened? You know, what, we see that all these pamphlets occur and then all of a sudden it just trickles off. And the dates, of course, coincide with the Battle of White Mountain and, mm. and the loss of Frederick's cause. And it took until Frances Yates pretty much to, to really expose that aspect of it. Although she kind of, I think, uh, assumed some things that perhaps weren't there. Yeah, but that book so, is so pivotal. Was so pivotal for so many people. Even if oh it yeah, if it wasn't it's an incredible book. And look at the impact right. on Terence McKenna. <laughs> and and I, I loved it. I mean, I it's a book that I've always loved. Yeah, but it's one I, of my favorites for sure. It does seem to me that the way you join the Rosicrucians is by looking for them, not finding them, and then doing it yourself. And that's how you mm -hmm. become a Rosicrucian. I mean, that was certainly true for so many people in Europe. Uh, and it is fascinating for me to draw periods or draw parallels between this period and the 60s, perhaps. It was just such a huge outpouring of creativity. And it always seemed to me that the Rosicrucian manifestos were more of an ideal for people to aim for and, and self-create in, in that way, rather than maybe that it was ever even an actual metaphysical order. But I think it was so much more powerful because of that. 
I agree. It, it's it, it really begins to become almost a situationist thing. Yeah. 300 years before situation. Yeah. Yeah. Like with Luther Blissett. I've thought about that. Um, mm-hmm. So it has occurred to me though, that it kind of like when you talk about this battle, when, when some of these ideals uh, crested in Europe, that possibly they found their full flowering in America where it was easier to build off of uh, a blank slate. I do think that was the idea because you do see there are pivotal people involved in the effort to bring Frederick into power that shift their attention to America after that. And the interest in America continues, well, I should say in North America, as we see Prince Rupert of the Rhine and in his influence in the colonization of Canada. And here is the son of Elizabeth, the Queen of Bohemia, and in a sense, the incarnation of the whole cause of esotericism and and uh, the the fight against the Catholic Church and his royalist uh, legend in in England and known as this sort of wizard warlock with a magical dog and a and a magical monkey and the pamphlets were written. I believe the dog had the honor of being the first animal to ever actually have a pamphlet written about them. <laughs> And well, I, I'm both, a, I'm a warlock and I have a magical dog, but I'm more, I need to get the magical monkey to complete the. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> to complete and, and, and it, the nice thing, by the way, is that both sides wrote about the dog. Right, the Catholics <laughs> made up these stories that it could fly and it was this demon and it would talk, and and, and then the Protestants wrote defensive pamphlets about how great this dog actually was. And this at one amazing. point, I love this story. Rupert had his his battalion. Um, they all like got on one knee and they toasted the dog. <laughs> the dog was super popular in the Royalist army. It was That's really amazing. Cool. That's amazing. Yeah. So, but he's in Canada colonizing there. And then, and then of course, Sir Walter Raleigh and, and in the very earliest colonies in Virginia, bringing Thomas Harriot and others here with all of them with deep esoteric interests. And, and I think they were they were toying with this idea. Francis Bacon kind of crystallized it with New Atlantis, but others, including Andre with Christianopolis, were all trying to conceive of these these uh, utopias that might be created in this new world. And so, definitely, as the, as the canvas is prepared for whatever is going to happen with colonization, and let's not make no mistake, it was an absolute disaster for the indigenous people yes. who had really tremendous cultures going on and and were, would be wiped out, especially in the area that we're talking about in the northeastern America, uh, just decimated by disease just by the arrival of the colonists. But yeah, I, I just heard yesterday that one of the capital cities of the Aztec Empire, just one of them had more people than the entire Roman Empire in it at its height which we just never think about. This is incredible. Yeah, there were huge, the Mississippian civilization with that one of the earliest cities anywhere that was bigger than London or Paris at the time. And, and so there, there were flourishing cultures and so many different ones. That's, that's part of the interesting thing about it. I think the the one up in, in the Northeast is particularly beautiful and was very influential in certain ways, even though it's controversial, I definitely believe from the research that I've seen that, that the Iroquois concept of democracy was an influence. Mm. And there was more to it than just Ben Franklin's caustic remark that if savages, quote unquote, could could create and, and make a democracy work, then why couldn't the colonies? 
but there were discussions about about how this democracy worked for them. And so when you when you bring everybody's everybody's coming into America and you have you have these outliers like uh, I write about Thomas Morton, the pagan pilgrim, mm-hmm. who was a royalist who was sent to the colonies at the age of 50 and who opened up a trading post that was as different from pilgrim America as it could possibly be. This was a person that that modeled himself after Shakespeare's Falstaff and uh, was a a a typical cavalier bon vivant, loving drink and music and women and philosophy and and deeply read in myths of ancient cultures. And when he dealt with the indigenous people, he was interested in their religions and in their dreams and in helping them. And he first attracted the ire of the pilgrims because he was selling guns. He was not supposed to be to the local tribes. He said to, so they could protect themselves from the predatory tribes that were coming in and taking their land because of the losses that were being suffered due to disease. But the pilgrims saw this as a threat to their colony because they didn't get along well with the indigenous people. The indigenous people trusted Tom Morton. And then there's this famous incident on May Day where he wanted, he erected a maypole. They found this huge yellow pine and they stripped it down till it was just glowing and, and put ribbons on it and put it on a, a green hill that was uh, right over the Atlantic. And they invited everyone, pirates, traders, indigenous people, the pilgrims. Everybody was invited to this party. Of course, the pilgrims did not attend. And in fact, he's the first American to receive an, uh, a, a visit from the authorities because of a wild party. <laughs> That's a great honor. Yeah, isn't it? And he also wrote the first, he's the first American to ever publish a fart joke. <laughs> so a true yeah. American then. He uh, did a lot of little puns and stuff at the pilgrims. He had nicknames for them. And 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 he really reveals a side of them that is very different from the Disney-fied side of the pilgrims that, that America was brainwashed with for so mm, long. Okay. And so here he is celebrating May Day and... And in a place called Marymount, and and he knows all the puns that are associated. Not only it doesn't mean the mountain of Mary, it's also a Latin pun on the male genitalia, and it's also Mary Mount, as in a, having a good time, mm-hmm. in that way. And so the, they have these big party, and and everything goes great, and he's 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 feeling that that this is what America should be. Everybody's invited. Everybody participates. Everybody, there's no need for a wall. The pilgrims live behind walls, but Marymount has no walls. But the pilgrims decide that he is too dangerous, and they start to go after him in various ways, legally back in London, legally there. And they attack him, literally. They arrest him. They destroyed Marymount eventually. Everyone who worked for him had to wind up working for the pilgrims and taking up their kind of Christianity and he was tortured by them. They starved him. They, they sent him uh, to live on an island with hardly any provisions at all, hoping that he would just die. But the local indigenous people brought him things. And then it's, a, it's a complicated story I tell about how for a, for a while he prevailed because the royalists were back in power. And then once again, a new king arrived and, and the rules changed again. And he finally, he failed to even influence America and in many ways is completely forgotten. But mm. 
uh, to me, he's like a founding father that that represents an alternative America that, again, the shadow side of America, the esoteric side that maybe is is what everyone is in love with about America. But America doesn't act that way or do things according to those ideas because America is is kind of locked into this idea that it's something different than what it actually right. was and is. Right. I want to, now that you brought up the Puritans, I want to touch touch on that because we so often hear that America is a Puritan country at its heart, that it has been defined by uh, the Protestant work ethic, the pilgrims, sexual repression, uh, you know, sexual Puritanism. And I wonder if that's actually true. Uh, I'm curious how you see that because that seems just really uh, an oversimplification. There's so much in this country. I definitely think that it is an oversimplification. It's not only an oversimplification, but it's a means of, of in a sense, channeling spiritual history into a, a way that that is is more functional for the purposes of people who support certain perspectives and so to this day we have people who are are get very violently angry at the idea that this is not a christian country that they they don't like the idea that it isn't right, right now ruled according to christian law by by strict christians and when you look at the actual history, what you find is very different than that. To begin with, in the colonies, I can't remember the exact number right off the top of my head, but it might have been, I think it might have been 30% was church attendance in those days. <laughs> there was constant A lot lower complaint. than you might think. Yes, and many complaints by ministers and priests talking about, we can't get these damn Americans into the pews. I mean, to be fair, if you came to the U.S. and you're surrounded by all this unbelievable wilderness, and that's both incredibly beautiful and incredibly harsh, I mean, I, I don't know. If and frightening. Church, and frightening, and, and I mean, there's a whole lot to do other than sit in a, sit in a church pew. Yes, absolutely. And also you're running into all these other belief systems that are that are bumping into each other and you're learning other yeah. approaches. So from, let's talk from about people. that. Um, absolutely. So let's you, you mentioned indigenous and I want to uh, let's talk about that. The, the indigenous influence, uh, both that, you know, the settlers came into contact with, but also in general. Uh, and then I want to touch on um, uh, the African influence. But yeah, mm -hmm. well, let's start with with. Uh, just an interesting example of, of indigenous influence and how it gets distorted. So um, I'll give you two. First, Thomas Harriot, who was arguably the first scientist working in America, was brought here with the Virginia colony and who wrote a chilling book, uh, an amazing book, but a book in which he, he detailed everything that was available in America for exploitation. And and use this phrase, we took it and we ate it about almost any kind of animal that you can imagine. <laughs> okay. And right. yeah, it was really, so you're really seeing in that book, you're seeing this business plan for what the future of America will be. It's, it's the pure heart of, of, of capitalist industrialized just eating everything. thinking. Yeah. I'm just, as you're, as, you're, as you're saying this, I'm just like flashing on like Costco people in line for free food samples. <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, but it is, it's like, it's like aisles of, of these descriptions of future products. Mm. 
okay. and divided into into their various themes and each aisle having its own. And so he, in one way, he represents something really terrible. But at the same time, while he was here, the, when he engaged with the indigenous people, he was very interested in language, in religion, in, in how they viewed their dreams and all, all the, the, the details of their, their lives. And so in trying to capture languages that did not fit into the letters that, that we all know, he invented an alphabet. And then he decided maybe this alphabet could be modified in such a way that it could be an alphabet that could capture the sounds of every language so that you could write every language on earth using this alphabet. It's an amazing idea. And it, it, ha- it, it absolutely, it's a very hermetic idea. Yes. Isn't it? And it, it has all that sense of, of, of the willingness and the, 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 the exuberance to change the world and discover the truth. And that we also saw in the sixties, again, with that resemblance, this hyper creativity and optimism about changing the world. And so Harriot takes this alphabet back to London with him and Raleigh gets into trouble because of his plot against King James, but they're still somewhat protected by the wizard Earl uh, Henry, who is a good friend of James. And, and as we know, Raleigh sets himself up in the tower of London, living rather the good life. And then eventually the wizard Earl follows him there, but he's got a bowling alley built. And at first it's looking pretty good. And they're having all their laboratory experiments and intellectual discussions and writing books. And, and then things go South. There are accusations of, of, one of the things that they said, for example, was that uh, Raleigh had over, been overheard saying at a dinner that, that Thomas Harriot could make better miracles than Jesus or Moses. There was an accusation that Bible pages were used uh, to wrap tobacco. And these were really serious charges at the time. And Harriot became notorious as this this Satanist. And the alphabet became known as the devil's alphabet. And it would reappear here and there again in sort of shoddy potboiler exploitation magical works or satanic works as the devil's alphabet. is an alphabet that was given by demons for use specifically in this way. And in fact, was invented to capture an indigenous American language. And I think that that story shows how, how warped you, you see, again, this, this split personality that will wind up being a big feature in America in the future, where on the one hand, we have the interest in, in another religion, another, another culture, and, and the desire to capture it. And then we have this willingness to demonize and mm-hmm. to exploit going hand in hand and sometimes attacking each other. And so that's one example in, on the indigenous side. Now, on the other side, we have people coming over, the cunning folk. And they're, they're, how do they differ from those who are called witches? Well, most of those who are called witches in America who suffer persecution don't really have the skills of cunning folk. They tend to be women who, because of their economic position and because of their, their outsider status and their local society and, and often their lack of socialization for one reason or another, are easily demonized. The cunning women and men are people who 
do have these skills. They, they can find things through dreams or dowsing or with a horoscope. They know herbal remedies or, or little superstitions that, that supposedly cure things. And, and if they're good at it, they are safe and they're popular and they're never accused of being witches. Now, these people, they are interacting with indigenous people who are involved in the in this new society and also with the African slaves who were brought over and with the traditions that they brought from Africa. And unlike the Christians who in the, in the, the strictest of them are afraid of these other traditions and think of them as strictly demonic. So you don't want to know anything about it. So for example, you get, you get early writers saying, yeah, these shamans could do stuff. No doubt. We saw them do things that are impossible like producing snow on a hot summer day in a goblet or all sorts of things. And they say, but that's clearly the power of the devil. And so they, but the cunning folk aren't thinking that way. The cunning folk are saying, well, how do you cure this? And how do you fix this kind of a problem? And they, they're all comparing notes as they begin to see that basically they are fulfilling the same functions for their cultures, Right. So it's, a, it's an exciting time to be able to, to access another culture's information. And it's not just cunning folk doing this. There are also those in the Hermetic tradition who approach it in a similar way because they are educated about the ancient world. They know that Plotinus followed after the armies of, of, the, of Imperial Rome in order to hopefully be able to speak to the wise men of, of Arabia and of, of India and they they want to speak to other cultures. They they want to find out if they see similarities. And often they see similarities, maybe that that weren't there. So, for example, Thomas Morton thought that the indigenous people might be the uh, the missing uh, tribe of Israel mm. because they they had Hebrew kind of sounding words in some of the language. So, and then other things happened that 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 brought to people's attention this, how the, the natives live so that, that you had, you have some thinkers like, like Morton and Harriot saying, I don't know. I, I mean, are we actually the superior culture because these people live, they're, they're healthier than we are. They're, they're happier than we are. Their families function better than, than ours. They don't have to hide behind walls they, they live in harmony with nature. They, the vegetables they grow are better than the vegetables that we grow. Yeah, it's always struck me that that kind of shock of contact also filtered back to Europe. And I would suspect was through, for instance, writings of um, uh, various philosophers. I mean, the, the, that was responsible in some ways for the sea change in thinking that occurred in Europe. Um, like people, writers like Rousseau and things like that, uh, and the Enlightenment and the revolutions that swept through through Europe. Um, I think perhaps just coming in contact with that, seeing a different way, and then becoming enamored with this idea of the quote unquote noble savage, which of course is also not seeing the reality at all. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. I think that there you get, for instance, you remember. The back in the day, they used to have these. It's incredible. Like in the suburban homes in the fifties, they loved indigenous sculpture. Like here is a, a, a Sioux warrior with his bonnet on a dying horse, or mm -hmm. and this would be like on the fireplace. Yes, 
it's such a strange thing to have this culture that decimated the other culture wind up fetishizing images of it well that's a huge i mean and and now we have you know like people wearing indian headdresses at festivals at coachella and things like this you know but i do remember that now that you're talking about that just my my grandparents having that i mean westerns were so huge as well which Mm -hmm. was probably a part of it but um yeah it has always struck me as slightly sinister that the the 60s countercultures were, um, you know, came on the wake of America's nuclear domination of the planet and the way that Americans celebrated winning the global battle was dressing up like the people they had genocided in the previous centuries. This is true. Although one can say that there was to a certain degree an attempt to embrace what was considered to be the the belief system or the practices of the culture. It was a, in, in dressing that way, many of the hippies, for example, were rejecting the culture that had produced the bomb and were saying that they wanted to go and, and live like the indigenous people had. But then at the same time, so much exploitation. I mean, first there's a whole question of appropriation at that point. And then there's the, the whole problem of people declaring themselves teachers who don't have the bloodline or the learning and and then these sort of false. So I think a great example of this is Castaneda. Yeah, I was just thinking. Yeah, yeah. And and it, the, there's a new incredible biography of him coming out called American Trickster that is going to be just a blockbuster. I, great. I think it will be out this year. Great. Maybe in March. I spoke to and, one of his uh, a long time ago. I spoke to one of his 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 witches as as he called them. Um, mm. Uh, Interesting. She was not. She was not a believer in his bullshit. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think. Well, what I understand from from reading interviews with the author of this book is that that this book will will really firmly place him in, as a cult leader and mm. will show a very disturbing side of him. But on the other hand, let's look at what he achieved. So we get this this alleged anthropological report written that UCLA gets behind about Don Juan and then it happens to hit America right at the time when when kids are getting into exploring drugs for spiritual purposes and so it's really speaking to that generation and it sells at, a, at an incredible rate and UCLA has never made that kind of money on a book and <laughs> so they're they're pushing that book and he becomes a star and he's a, he's a recluse. We're not even sure we have a picture of him. Um, they say that the Time magazine cover was was probably an imposter. And he creates his he buys this building and he creates this sort of like community with his witches and and we, we're not even sure. We I guess we'll find out now what was going on in there. But at the time, everybody thought this was a field anthropologist who'd met Don Juan out there, and that he was reporting Yaki beliefs. And as time goes on and academia catches up with all this, we discover, first of all, well, those actually aren't Yaki beliefs, because now that we've actually gone and and worked our (laughs) anthropology with the Yaki's, we know what their beliefs are. And then the search for Don Juan, well, of course, we never find him. He fits beautifully into the invisible master tradition. The fault of not finding him is no doubt upon us because we are unworthy. But... Then you start to hear things about how he he remarketed like like people don't realize that he took a lot of his older teachings and he remarketed them as tensegrity and and this kind of Buckminster Fuller conceptualization. He was teaching the same basic things, but in this new kind of 
uh, computer world friendly, mm. technical intellectual yeah. approach. And it didn't sell that well. So then they went back and he did another, another Don Juan kind of retrospective. And can we deny that he was a huge and important influence on so many people? The truth was found in the books and some level that changed people's lives and that, that people who were just beginning, I mean, he, the work that will eventually become, become Terrence McKenna as he, in a sense, begins by, by the whole ayahuasca thing, in a sense, starts yes, with him. Yeah. I, I think it, it strikes me. It's, Another situation similar to the Rosicrucian manifestos where the myth is a lot more important than the actual truth. But yes. I'm remembering now the woman I, I spoke to was Amy Wallace, who's now passed on, unfortunately. She was the daughter of Irving Wallace, who wrote that very famous book in the 70s, The Intimate Sex Lives of Famous People, um, which I ended up becoming a ghostwriter on. And I wrote like 10 new chapters for the new the new version. And one of them was on Castaneda. So I ended up speaking with her and her take on what had happened. She suspected that Don Juan was real, that Castaneda had met him as a grad student, UCLA grad student, and had gone down there and had that first book was to all intents and purposes, um, accurate. Um, but then he went back down once he started making a ton of money, then he went back down to get more for more books. And whoever Don Juan was, was like, Hey man, like, where's my half? And Cassidy's <laughs> like, what are you talking about your half? I'm just doing field work here. And then, and then, then he was cut off. It's like, no, I'm not, you're not going to rip me off like this. And then, so from the second book on, I think he just, her take was, he just started making it up, you know, and he's making a lot of money. So that, I think that that, that sounds, I mean, certainly logical. Yeah. And some of those later books are just out to lunch. Um, I want to talk before we lose the thread, I want to talk about um, the African diaspora and the influence on American spirituality there, because that does not get talked about enough. And it's it's huge. I mean, we're talking about the creation of whole new religions uh, in the yes. Afro-Caribbean tradition and that type of thing. Yes. Oh, and far beyond. I mean, it, it's when you th when you consider let's let's just look at that for a moment and let's look at New Orleans and and the influence there of of that caribbean african culture and how it turns into american music the distinctly american forms of music as rhythm and blues jazz and rock and roll are all born from rituals robert johnson in congo square and the rituals begin simply as, as people gathering to play the drums and dance. They're not allowed to do their full African rituals, but they, they can do that. And the uh, local white population used to gather to ogle at, at this spectacle of everyone dancing wildly. And, and apparently there were stories of, of ladies who fainted when they heard the drums and uh, they just couldn't. It, it was just the most devilish, outlandish sound they'd ever heard. And this, of course, becomes what is recognized now as, as an American art form. And, and that American art form has a spiritual side to it. So it leads directly to something like Coltrane's A Love Supreme. It leads to, to even though they're not American, you could say it leads to the Beatles, right? Absolutely. With their whole, their whole love song books of love. And, and on and on. I mean, it's, it's just so many, it, I don't want to belabor the point. And so, so this is just one small 
example of how 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 big the influence is and and then in the esoteric world i want to add while we're on on the subject there you also have these strange examples like uh there were kabbalists who wandered into the colonies from people who had traveled all over the world and who who wanted to visit the colonies as well and who brought kabbalah here and and there was a very early university president at Yale who made the serious argument that Kabbalah should be taught at all American schools. <laughs> Can you time. imagine? <laughs> right? I know. <laughs> and and so you could actually find someone like that. And if if and if the fate brought you in their presence and, and you have the interest, they would teach you. And so there were all these different cultures. But going back now to the indigenous and the and the African which were profoundly influential. And I think they, they dovetailed in many ways. And so I think that an interesting person to consider in this respect is Randolph, mm. who is a, is a multi-race person who, whose racial identity at times he, he tries to deny it and try, sometimes he's embracing it. Sometimes he's using it to his advantage. Sometimes it's, he's complaining that it's prevented him from receiving the respect that he deserved. And and this really shows us the predicament. I mean, it's hard enough to be an esoteric in a predominantly Christian political culture, but to be one of color and to be so brilliant and and so ahead of his time, I always think of Randolph as somebody that if, if you had dropped Randolph into hate Ashbury, he would have been a star. Mm -hmm. But he was so too early and all these things that he gave birth to with that imagination, the influence on the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, the influence on theosophy through Blavatsky's competitive and hostile feelings around him, and and the way that he he brought together the idea of of ritual practice for for gains, material gains, almost defines a whole area of American spiritual preoccupation from mind cure to practicing manifestation. Well, and he was also profoundly influential on, on Crowley and Thelema and, and the, the heart occult end of things. Absolutely. Uh, with, I mean, he's, and the whole idea of sex magic in a sense comes, goes back to him, if I'm correct. Yes. And, and he's, he's an abolitionist. He's, he's fighting for the rights of women. He's talking about birth control at a time when that was a dangerous subject. And so he's, he's really a really remarkable American. And, and I do think that he, he sort of gives birth to a whole stream of, well, he definitely does of Rosicrucianism, right? Because there still is uh, uh, the Rosicrucian organization that, that claims heritage from him. And so He's a giant, I think, in, in American metaphysical religion. And fortunately, we have some wonderful studies of him now, like Patrick Devaney's. And it's, it, he's somebody that, that I wish more Americans knew about and exemplifies a way that because he's able to reach back into African tradition. So when I hear about it, there was a time apparently where he organized these sort of of course, they were accused of just being wild parties, but they were meant to be specific ritually oriented experiences where he would bring together hashish, uh, men of color, and well-heeled white women. And and this, of course, created a big scandal. But but this is is this community getting together as a community 
and and the use of the intoxicating sacrament and and including sexuality in the proceedings to me seem to be a way of deconstructing the the European westernized version of of spiritual pursuit. It's similar to what was going on in the circles that Rasputin was moving around huh. in, in in Russia at the turn of the, the 20th century. And it's it's shedding a lot of this this morality of of the West and embracing this much more direct approach. And to maybe even pushing it further than than its origins uh, were were used to practicing. Have you ever so, read the book uh, "Flight to Canada" by Ishmael Reed? I have not. I highly recommend that. It's a novel, but it's it's uh, it talks about American history as if it's a huge. It's a kind of tapestry of two competing conspiracies, and the two co- conspiracies are African rhythms, which are referred to as "just grew" in the book, and you know, stuffy European classical music and, and uh, stick up the ass type behavior. And that, that the whole history of America can be uh, explained as this, like this vast esoteric uh, conspiracy between these two forms of music. And it's, I mean, it's like worthy of a uh, Illuminatus trilogy or better in, in some ways. Uh, that, that sounds that's, great. That's a, I'll yeah, recommend it. it out. Yeah. yeah. I think that's very true. I, I think that there's, this is the split that we're talking about here. Okay. It's the the esoteric side where exploration is encouraged, where uh, women and people of color are held up, and where there is fascination and curiosity about other cultures and their belief systems and a willingness to share and a distrust of hierarchy and autocracy and and the a restlessness that keeps moving at first westward to get away from those kind from, from the other side of it and the other side of it is this corporate uh, hierarchical authoritarian everybody has to believe the same thing there is only one right way approach and america is so much both of these but we have been mostly the latter because the latter has seized the narrative and so many of the of the people who represent the former, the the esoteric side, have been left out of historical narrative, and are are pretty much forgotten. That was one of the big motivations for me in writing the book. I felt like I, mean, I didn't intend to write this book. This was something that I did. Uh, it started way back when I worked for Manley Hall, and and I was just trying to get answers to questions. You know, finding something like the Platonist, this newspaper wrapped up in a leather-bound tome that was published around the time of the gunfight at OK Corral uh, in, on, the, on what was then the frontier, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. And Mr. Hall didn't know much about it. And so those kinds of mysteries led me to, to research and, and talk to academics and on and on for a long time. And when I would tour with my band, I would go to libraries and to bookstores looking for more information about these various mysteries. And eventually, I realized that this was a book, and I, I felt like I was rescuing these these people from from the lake of forgetfulness, mm. and and that that I found them so invigorating. I mean, people ask me, "Well, there's so many frauds in there," and it, it makes them feel cynical. And I try to tell them, actually, that what the book convinced me that you can find a lot of wisdom in the hands of frauds. <laughs> 
And that a lot of people who are known for their wisdom had a little bit of fraud too. Yeah, that's one of life's uh, uh, consistent paradoxes, I think. It's interesting though, as you're talking about this, as you have been talking about this, it's been, I've been thinking that so many of the cultural forms that have started in America have been and are still considered, you know, trash. So for instance, rock and roll, comic books, science fiction, uh, these are all considered or, you know, by the broader establishment or by, by uh, certainly by European artists to be completely beneath contempt. And yet there are, and jazz is another, well, jazz is not considered beneath contempt, but it was for a while. Um, and it strikes me that like, that is obviously not the case. These are profoundly creative, um, unique, important cultural movements. And I'm wondering if esotericism, perhaps, you know, American esotericism, esotericism, I've been saying this word for 30 years. You think I could get it? Um, <laughs> could be seen in that light as this kind of underdog tradition that, that oh, is definitely. so worthy oh, of, yeah. of, of uh, exploration. Oh, I think so. Definitely. I think that it's, although there, there are, we have American homegrown varieties of repressive Christianity in a big way, a lot of the evangelical uh, developments and such, but but in a sense, between the Catholic Church and the various Protestant denominations that originated in Europe, a big chunk of American Christianity is involved in European institutions. Mm, I hadn't considered that before. And so the, the whole thought process huh. in those institutions and in the way they're organized and what they teach is going to be, it, it, again, it's this, we call it elitist, perhaps. Maybe that's not the right word, but it's our way is the only true way. And so anything that differs from our way is demonic, or if you have grown out of demonic, it's trash. The influence of, of American, of these, these trashed arts and beliefs, though, are, are enormous and mm. in, the, in the real meaning of the word monstrous. <laughs> and, and both in that they're vast and that, that, that they, they do have a warping effect. So I, for example, argue in the book that I think that you could make a pretty good argument that American Christianity resembles American metaphysical metaphysical Christianity. I'm sorry, I just did it too. American Christianity resembles American metaphysical religion more than it does traditional Christianity. That's interesting. Uh, and I think certainly the, you know, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the Christian groups that came over here, initially were, were cults. I mean, it's like you read about the, these things that seem like mainstream denominations now, like Presbyterians and Methodists. And like, at the time they were practically like snake handlers, like out in the boonies and in, in the UK, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and, uh, you know, Chris Hedges, the writer, I'm sure, you know, always mm -hmm. says American Christianity or evangelical Christianity is not Christianity. It's, it's heresy. <laughs> you know, he, he considers it heresy. Um, but, well, Harold yeah, Bloom, mm -hmm. uh, Harold Bloom used to call it uh, American Gnosticism, and he also called it American Orphism. Hmm. He felt that it resembled Persian religion more than Christianity. You mean in the the black and white good versus evil obsession? Yes. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Say more about that. Well, he he's a fascinating character. He's another really bedrock figure in the study of American metaphysical religion. He wrote a book, I think it was called The American Religion. I can't believe I can't remember it right now, but I think that's what it was called. And 
it was this masterpiece and and he was looking at American religion and saying, wow, this isn't Christianity. Here's a literary critic looking at religion and noticing that that the the title and the and the narrative have nothing to do with each other. And so he he in his study of it, he he came to the conclusion that whether you were looking at somebody like Jim Morrison or you were looking at at American evangelical Pentecostalism, that it resembled the Persian hmm. concept of spirituality more than it did the European. And, and in the sense that you have already said, in the battle between dark and light and the, the heroic stance and, and the, the fire worship aspect of it. And, and in the desire to, in a sense, identifying the approval of divinity with having success and prosperity. Well, that's a very Calvinist uh, inheritance, I, I would say. As well, certainly. Yeah. So did he have a kind of a general take on why that was? Or an overarching he felt, theory he felt about that it? it? He thinks that it was, I mean, I, he, what's the best, this is such a, uh, this could be a podcast onto itself, that book. But basically what, what he's seeing is that as the melting pot is bubbling along and and as the people are not particularly well educated, but they have more freedom and access to individuality by moving west and reinventing themselves, that they fall out of the pessimistic viewpoint of most Christianity, the fatalism of it. And they they are attracted to modified versions that give them a sense of fighting against something but also of heroic effort. Interesting. There's obviously great things about that and also profoundly <laughs> problematic <laughs> things about it, as we saw, for instance, uh, in the Satanic Panic. And you even, I see you even touched upon QAnon in this book, uh, mm. where it just gets completely out of hand. But that's really interesting. I had never considered that before. Um, it also makes me think, uh, you know, for as cringe as this comment is going to be, uh, Star Wars, in a sense, I think, really brings so many of these things together and became kind of like a, 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 an American folk religion in its own right, oddly enough. Yes, I think so. And I think that when you consider that, that in all, in all religions, the, the words that are used to, to, to define the, the information that, that has to be shared are subject to context as Wittgenstein pointed out so long ago, and are easily abstracted into things that may not actually exist. I always loved his example of time as this, the second hand on your watch, and then this abstract concept of time. And his idea was, well, th there is no abstract time. There's a time. The time is what happens when the sun does this and the earth does that, and, and we notice it, and the second hand keeps it. That's time. And so he was always fighting against that, that human tendency to, to sort of make platonic forms out of everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that something like Star Wars and, and a phrase like the Force can convey 
the same thing that's being conveyed in esoteric language and through through simple language and visuals and emotional reactions. And this again would I think speak to to Bloom's idea of the of the Persian mysticism or the American yeah. Gnosticism that that there is this sense that that it must appeal to people who are going to be sitting out there in the movie theater that we're not dealing with with a well uh, a domesticated church brought up in churches with deep education and and with a deep understanding of the bible we're dealing with a populace that is restless that that wants to be distracted wants to see miracles all the time <laughs> and doesn't much care if they're cgi or not that's an, that's a great point that's interesting um and I was thinking also, you brought up Jim Morrison and, and so many of these things. There really does seem to be an, an element of, you know, faith revivalism to so many spiritual things in America. And I was just thinking, you were talking about, you know, people are not necessarily approaching these things academically. They, they are perhaps uneducated. But I'm thinking, you know, from Jim Morrison to snake handling to, you know, tent revivals, to Tony Robbins uh, events, things like this. I mean, there, there always does seem to be that tremendously physical aspect to uh, how people approach things here. Um, and I wonder where, what, why that is. I think part of it probably is because we're such a young country with our frontier having so recently really been, been conquered. Most of the European countries have such old and, and rich histories. And here, the, the pioneer spirit is, is something that's still somewhat fresh. And in the 1960s, the kids were still feeling it. You know, they used to bring ponies around the suburbs for, and with cowboy outfits and stuff. And your kid can take mm -hmm. a picture. And, yeah. and there, was, there was definitely a, a Western fetish. Even, even in, in the far West, like Los Angeles and San Francisco, they were fetishizing Western culture, pioneer culture, indigenous culture. And I think that you can see, let, let's, I, I'm a really good example of this, I think. And I think that you're the right person to talk about this with. And that may not, that opportunity may not come up again <laughs> in a podcast anytime soon is, is Genesis. Oh, yes. Because, yeah. because here is uh, an example. Genesis Purage, not uh, the band that Phil Collins uh, and Peter yes, Gabriel exactly. were. Okay, got to specify. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So here's Genesis, who we're taking this art form that's born in Congo Square, and now we're reapplying it in, into, into you know, something similar to its original intent, right, with Psychic TV. We're, we're making ritual out of every song. We're, the, the drum is a ritual instrument again with Genesis. And then this circle goes all the way to... The way that Genesis, the, the, the friend of mine actually produced the documentary Blight of the Twin. Yes. Which, which showed. Wait, which, this, which, which person? Uh, Tiffany Naiman. Okay. No, I don't know her. All right. I know Douglas and Hazel. But... Hazel is a friend of Tiffany's. I see. Okay. <laughs> Tiffany's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful producer, but she's also a, a professor in music at Stanford and at uh, UCLA. Wow. Very cool. Um, so Genesis, so the music that Genesis recognizes the original intent of and then revitalizes it with psychic TV and then eventually returns to the culture of origin of that music and participates in ritual in order to be bound so that to become a they with the, the, the loved, the beloved. And so 
I think that's an incredible example of of the influence of of African culture through America. Yeah, it's profound and and it can't be emphasized enough, I, I think. And but also created so many new cultural forms here. Yes. Uh, and that's fascinating. I want to bring this up to the 20th century. Um, but before that, uh, I want to make sure we touch on some of the late, you know, 1800s, the spiritualism, I think that even blending into kind of Edgar Casey, And, uh, I definitely want to talk about people whiling out on Mount Shasta. That's going to be fun. Um, <laughs> but kind of, if, if, maybe if you want to go to the kind of turn of the century there, cause that definitely seems to be when things crystallize into quote unquote esotericism as we now understand it. Well, it, I, to me, it kind of begins with transcendentalism. Oh yes. Let's not, let's not, yeah, let's touch on that for sure. So here's this explosion with Emerson and, and, and we really get to see the impact and, and how controversial Emerson was when we look at people like Hiram Jones or Thomas Johnson, who will become part of the Platonist movement that occurs next and who describe being young men, either in school or in, at their university and finding Emerson's book, which at that time was being universally uh, critiqued as, as, as basically insane and, and a betrayal of everything that America and Christianity stand for. And, and read it and had their lives completely changed. And then in most cases, they wanted to read what Emerson had read, and that threw them back to the Neoplatonists. And through there, opened up the doors to Hermeticism and, and the whole Western tradition. And so transcendentalism becomes this, this moment, this watershed moment, when it all kind of surges into public awareness and reaches popularity again after bubbling under the surface for so long in the wake of the Great Awakening when Christianity, and especially very strict Christianity, became this very popular religion again. And so the transcendentalists give birth to this kind of, it's almost at the same time, but a little bit later, this whole Platonist movement occurs. Um, Hiram K. Jones is, is they call him the, the Plato of the West and, and he has some great nicknames. And he loved to talk about Plato and he would go to uh, the transcendentalist events and, and he would give these four or five hour speeches about Plato and Plato's beliefs. And people would listen and then they would go out and take a boat ride on the Concord and then they would come back and listen some more. And there were clubs that opened up in the frontier in the Midwest, usually run by women, by teachers, and and sometimes by men who were involved in, in schools. And they were bringing in speakers who were, like Hiram K. Jones, experts on Platonism. And they were studying Plato and celebrating Plato's birthday. And I actually include in the book a description of one of these Plato birthday rituals that these women were having. And, and so... Plato became inexplicably popular. The newspapers and the magazines were all carrying stories about Plato. And it was all the rage to such a degree that, that academics are arguing that there's nothing that happens later in American spirituality, esotericism, that isn't, isn't marked by Plato because of the saturation point that occurred there. Hmm. And so the next thing is spiritualism seems to be somewhat inspired by Platonism. That I'd never and, heard before. That's fascinating. And so what happens is, for example, spiritualism 
well, let's go back to Platonism for a moment and say, why would a woman get into this stuff? Why wasn't she just studying the Bible or doing what women were supposed to be doing according to the church? Well, for one thing, Plato was very elite. And among men, to understand and discuss Plato was considered to mean that you were really something. And so women who could do this, there were women who could read Plato in Greek. They were claiming power. They were showing off that they had intellects that were equal to that of the best of the males around them. And this was a form of very early women's liberation in these parties. And so spiritualism, as usual occurring in the rural area, it goes way back in America, back to the Shakers, back to the Quakers. There were sleeping prophets and there, the Shakers had young women who heard angelic music and then fell into trance and, and the, the dead would speak through them. And they, they, there was, it's a long tradition in America to want to speak to the dead. And so, but then with the Fox sisters, for whatever reason, suddenly it, it hit the public imagination. Maybe the media had grown up enough in terms of the distribution networks of newspapers and such that more people could hear about it more quickly. And that created a kind of, of uh, reaction that we would later see with things like Elvis. And everybody wanted to do their own experiments or to hear these mediums. And as a result of this, women who were channeling male spirits for the most part would be able to command auditoriums filled with men and tell them that they were wrong about this or that they should be doing that. <laughs> okay. Women who would not even be allowed to say anything in front of a group of men it became quite powerful. If you look at someone like Victoria Woodhull, who became the first stockbroker, a female stockbroker on Wall Street and the first female presidential candidate, and was a for a while a leading suffragette until her her psychic stuff became too much of a scandal for everyone, and she she really made herself a powerful woman of the time and did it all through her abilities as a medium, but also because she was no fool. You know, she was an, she educated herself, and so who was her spirit control? Who, who was the spirit she claimed who inspired her to give the first speech that a woman ever gave before Congress? Unless it was Francis Wright who did that. But it was a very early one, if not the first. Well, it was Demosthenes, the great Athenian orator. <laughs> Interesting. So that now you're claiming power through, well, Demosthenes speaks through me. And, and you know, I'm going to now lay down this was what's wrong with Congress. your ideas. This was before Congress? Um, she, she did not tell Congress that Demosthenes was there, but she did later say so in print. Okay. But that's who inspired her. And so she was meanwhile fighting for birth control. She wanted women to be able to divorce. She thought that marriages should be handled very differently than they were. And she believed in the importance of female sexuality in the same way that Randolph did without any of the, the other ritual aspects of it. And she is a good example, I think, of, of applying these, these spiritual principles in ways that lead to political movements and to political influence. Then, as, as we go up further, well, first of all, we have this popularity of spiritualism is a, is a cesspool of exploitation, of course. And you have examples like the Witch of Lime Street, who was notorious for being almost naked or wearing these very see-through kinds of gowns. And for many 
of these many of these mediums were basically peep shows or disguised prostitution. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't know also, that either. Yeah, and there was also organized crime. So they would they they were these groups of mediums who would tip each other off about good clients and give them information about them and all that. And all kinds of seedy. Well, that that continues occur. today. I mean, in terms of the 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 psychic mafia of kind of like street corner uh, psychic shops, that, that right, definitely exactly. organized crime. Yes, low level. And then, and then you also have um, you have the you have seedy little scenes like like Houdini trying to prove that the witch of Lime Street is a fraud and. He actually commits an act of fraud to try to trick her into an act of fraud. And there's there's a description in my book about this one sequence where the only way that he can make sure she's not fraudulent is he's got her tied up on a chair in a box and he's got his bare thigh against her inner bare thigh so he can feel her. I mean, it's really kinky stuff. Okay. And so... A lot of this is boiling under the surface with spiritualism, and it becomes scandalous. So many frauds are exposed. There's so many mistakes making and fraudulent things said. And, and of course, that's the case in any profession. I always remind people, whether it's right. doctors or lawyers or anything else, there's going to be a tiny percentage of brilliant, selfless people, and then very expensive, technically skilled people, and then a lot of people who don't yeah. know what they're doing but claim they yeah. do. Well, I think there's a meta point to be made there that that struck me where you're talking about the Houdini and his, his uh, you know, kind of like trying to get some type of sexual fulfillment or whether it's, uh, you know, the will to power has to be expressed through spiritualism where there's kind of something that spiritualism or occultism is a cover for another need. But once it's put into a different ritual context, it's like, now it's okay. You know, I'm thinking also of like Anton LaVey's orgies and things like that. I don't think people right. were, you know, like everyone who saw that was excited about it, but was not thinking about, you know, the deep metaphysical meaning of it. It was like, this is like a, uh, I don't want to say an excuse, but, you know, but that's always seems to be the case with spiritualism and occultism. The people who are interested in it are also invariably pushing against the walls of restriction and are interested in things like alternative relationship styles or drugs or right. in this at this period in history women's liberation so um that i think shouldn't be underestimated in the sense of like I, it's really important to distinguish what the covert goals are going on what covert goals are happening with people who are involved in this uh, there might be talking about you know ascended masters and the quest for truth and all of this but really they're there for other reasons. And it's not necessarily a sinister thing. It's just, <clears throat> it needs to be picked apart. If you're, I feel if you're interested in the actual intellectual content of some of these, these movements. Agreed. I definitely think that the pressure to, to make a living is very underestimated in terms of what kinds of distortions it causes yeah. in the, in the arcs of, of teachers. Well, that's something that I feel that American uh, spiritual movements have really had to come to grips with as well, because and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, like I think about like the time I spent in England, you know, most of the people that are real heavily involved in, in the occult there are, you know, uh, on the dole or, you know, they're just like upper crust and they have money. So there's not, there's not this sense of needing to constantly be a success and do the Horatio Alger uh, thing. And um, I, I feel that people should not be hung up about 
uh, sometimes the financial aspects of these things, because it is a skill that people have uh, that other people want. And so I don't know, but I feel that American spirituality has really had to tackle that head on and it's been successful in some ways. I think we have a heritage here too of distrusting the wealthy that goes back to the origination of the country where they were basically Mm. the elite was throwing people out of the country saying, we don't want you here. Right. Now uh, to continue our, our talk about spiritualism and how it, now how does it evolve? So when we, when we reach Edgar Cayce, we see something that that is a, a different approach in a way. Now we have, in the past, we had spiritual communities where a bunch of mediums, and we still have them like Lilydale, would, would have houses, or there might be spiritual camps where you go in summer and spend a weekend and listen to various mediums and speakers. And Casey comes along. First of all, it's very interesting to see him too, the way he's influenced by theosophy. So for example, as the work of K. Paul Johnson has shown, that he doesn't talk about reincarnation until he goes south and he takes some classes at a theosophical society uh, meeting and he learns about it. And now is this that he has now decided that makes sense to me, so I'm going to include it in the readings? Or is it, as some argue, that that he was unable as a Christian who distrusted these things to talk about reincarnation. So when, when whatever was guiding him in his channeling went to speak about it, it would be blocked. But now that theosophy opened that door, suddenly there could be readings about reincarnation. But in him, we do see how he, his readings are influenced by this melting pot of beliefs and they, they grow and, and become more more inclusive and diverse as a result over time and he really is although there were others such as 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 the mind cure healer quimby or or very much so um andrew jackson davis one of the great early american mediums very popular they they had communities around them they had volunteers and people working with them and such but edgar casey actually creates an organization in are or an organization is created around him and around these readings that becomes a huge influence on american metaphysics going forward especially on the new age and so many of his ideas became commonplace in the new age but at the time were were radical and some of them are things that again as johnson has pointed out that we see now is common sense in holistic medicine, but they appear first in the Casey readings. So we get a, we're getting a different focus here. It's much less razzle dazzle and talk to a dead relative. And, and it's now turning into why am I this way? Like, how come I am not successful? And the answer isn't that you're being crossed by a malevolent spirit or something like that. It's karma related mm. to a past life, or it's, it's some kind of, um, it, it, for instance, it, he often would talk about how even things like like problems with the spine would be related to emotional f- tunings that a person who's afraid all the time. Yeah, that makes me think. So of, what's that? Uh, Louise Hay. Yes. What was it? There was like some, she, wrote that book where like she every every single physical problem can be uh, traced to like you know you have issues with your mother that type of thing. Meaning of of a certain emotional uh, distortion or disharmony that mm. that creates this problem, 
Yeah, exactly. And that's what he was doing. That's Quimby. That, that really goes back to Quimby more than anything, I think. But the, the guy, he, Quimby was somebody who very strongly influenced Mary Baker Eddy. It was one of his patients and basically took his, his system of belief and practice and made it into Christian science. And Quimby was this, uh, that's, a, that's a long discussion. Let's, let's stick to where we are and talk about, so now we have Casey. Now he becomes very famous and, and a, a big influence in the, in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. And, and then we get these sort of TV psychics and these famous characters who pop up on Dr. Phil or things like that. But we're, we haven't really seen spectacular cases of psychics so much. But I would argue that we have actually seen two. One who was famous at one time and one who never was famous at all. And the one who was famous was uh, a, a woman named Betty White. Of course, not that Betty White. <laughs> and she, with her husband, Stuart Edward White, wrote a series of books, the most famous of which was called The Unobstructed Universe. And this was a completely different kind of activity. It started with a Ouija board. It went into automatic writing and then into channeling. But rather than it have anything to do with let's talk to our dead relatives or let's even get healing prescriptions. This was about teaching Betty how to cross over and come back while she was still here and, and to describe what the other side is. And, and her description of it is radically different. She talks about how we exist in, the, in an obstructed dimension of the same world that they exist in in an unobstructed way. And she goes into great deal about how frequencies, uh, detail about how frequencies work and, and all kinds of fascinating perceptions on, on how life functions and how to, and then it eventually gets around to having a good life. So to give you an example, she talks about the experience of falling into what she calls the vortex. And when you fall into the vortex, you have forgotten that you are a soul, that, that you will survive your body. And now you are you are living afraid inside your body, filled with angst. And she's talking doing, about she's talking about Orange County. Yes, and probably I was going to say probably doing stupid things, and and so there's a a sense that that. And now here's the amazing thing about this story, by the way. So these books, Stuart had already been a very successful writer of sort of adventure novels, and he was a good friend of Teddy Roosevelt's. Roosevelt said that he was the best shot that he'd ever seen. Uh, he had a golden trout named after him in California in a sequoia grove. And, and he was a remarkable human being. They were very successful even during the Depression. They lived this like amazing, perfect life with a, a yacht going to Alaska all the time. And just lovely. Really two people deeply in love and making something of their lives. They should have never only wanted had to, Instagram. Right? And they, they never did a school. They never, they never encouraged followers. In fact, most of their work was anonymous. And then Betty, the, the spirits at a certain, they call them the invisibles, at a certain point told them, okay, this, this part of it's done. And now we're going to have to do something else that they call the blossoming. And they said, it may not be comfortable, but this is the only way to finish the work. And Stuart thought, well, this is just going to be more a deeper level of teaching of some kind. But then two weeks later, Betty became extremely ill. And for two months, she suffered while Stuart tried to convince her that, that healing herself was what the spirits were after. They wanted her to, to prove the teachings by regenerating. 
And eventually he realized that that was not the case, that she was suffering and getting worse and worse. And he he talks about how he went and he sat down in, a, in a, his favorite chair and he directed his thoughts toward her in her bed. And he said, if you need to go, please don't stay for me and suffer. I, I let you go gladly. I know that that we're together. And a minute later, the doctor walked out and said that she had just died and that she had, before she died, having been so weak, she could only speak one word at a time. She suddenly opened her eyes and spoke in her old, and he described it as as, as um, zestful gay voice. I had a talk with my boy and everything's okay now. I can leave and then just died. And so he thought that was the blossoming. But then he felt immediately in the aftermath, in the grief and the feelings of separation, he describes it as, do you know that feeling when you're with someone you love? Maybe you're both reading books and there's a fire on and you just feel each other's presence. And he said, isn't that really what we're after in all the things that we do together when we're in love, whether it's sexuality or it's, it's, it's the activities we do together? We're looking for that feeling of soul contact, of just being there together. And he said, I felt that 10,000 times more powerful from Betty than I'd ever felt it in my life. And it never stopped for the rest of my life. And he said, that convinced me. So he thought, okay, that must be the blossoming. I'll write that down. And then he went around, he, just as like a year before Pearl Harbor, he went around and his friends wanted him to visit and so he wouldn't be alone. And he was avoiding all mediumship because he... He admits later that he was afraid that if if they tried to channel Betty and it came out stilted, that it would possibly hurt his faith and and reawaken his grief. So he wound up going to the house of these people that were known as Joan and Darby. They had a very famous book called Our Unseen Guest around the time of World War One, and they had been kind of the guides for the whites through this process of discovering mediumship and and their their experiment. And he insisted that there be no contact with Betty. And, and Joan said, well, why, why don't we do a session, but we won't talk to Betty. We'll talk to my spirit and, and maybe that'll help you. Maybe they can tell you something that, you know, will make you feel better. He agreed to that. And the second that she went under, Betty stormed in and he, he reports that she spent two and a half hours giving him the most minute details of their lives without a single miss except one, which was the story about blue slippers. Hmm. He later found out that he actually had forgotten about the blue slippers, and that, too, was accurate. Interesting. And Interesting. amazing. So, Well, why don't we... So they, I'm just time conscious. Why don't we... I want to bring this up to the 60s uh, okay. and, um, and kind of the Aquarian age and everything that happened there, just because I want to make sure we cover as much of... Uh, as much as we can while in our in our time yes so the 1960s that's when it that, <laughs> well we've got timothy leary on one hand who is is co-authoring the this psychedelic guide to it's basically it's the it's the tibetan book of the dead as as reinvented by by evans wentz who was sort of the authority at the time and now we know that in fact, Evans Wentz channeled what he called missing parts. Uh, is, that, is that right? 
Yes, of the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. That's so frustrating. And yeah, <laughs> and, and that there were actually many Tibetan books of the dead. That there wasn't like a definitive Tibetan Book of the Dead the way he represents it. Huh. That that really it, it's a genre. What, rather were, the, what than were the a what were the parts that he made up? I don't know the exact ones, oh, but I can man. recommend that's you the book. I'll, okay. I'll send you a link. Okay. And and so. So, so that's already something, you know, so there's like channeled material in this supposedly Tibetan stuff that, that is now being reinvented by Leary for use by, by young hippies who are taking LSD. Mm-hmm. But there's still, it, it's like astrology, you know, that, that, which also exploded in the 1960s, where you have these different systems, even different house systems. And people who are rational point out how on earth can this stuff work? when there's so many different ways of looking at something and none of them agree with each other. And if one, if this one makes sense, then that means that that one doesn't. And yet, if you're familiar with astrology and astrologers, you know that all these different systems do work, that for the astrologer for whom they work, it becomes a vehicle where valuable information can be shared. And so it's the same thing, I think, here. It's, it's how, does it, how, how can it possibly work when there there are these contradictory aspects to it and so yes the tibetan book of the dead really wasn't intended for use by lsd seekers of of vision and yes the the book actually as presented in english had channeled parts that weren't really from the book of the dead and Yes, Timothy Leary reinvented it along with his co-authors in a, in a way that would be palatable for hippies at the time. And yet many hippies had great trips because of it and had bardo experiences and were opened up to the ideas of Tibetan Buddhism. And in a weird way, that little book could be seen as, as opening the door to what would later become this wonderful river of inspiration through publishers like Shambhala, where you were actually getting the Tibetan mm-hmm. texts. And so in the 60s, it, there was this, I think there really was a rejection of that, that 19, the 1950s and that post-war era seemed to have really crystallized a certain conformist attitude about life. And, and the, the materialist perspective was, it was at its height, even while the influence of churches was so strong. And there was this, these vibrant subcultures, writers like, like we've already mentioned, like like Kerouac and Ginsburg and jazz musicians and the beginnings of rock and roll with Elvis and, and little Richard and, and the blues that, you know, muddy waters and which were about to unleash the Rolling Stones and a whole bunch of other bands. And so, but in the fifties, they were down there, they were very much demonized and, you know, you couldn't, everybody knows you couldn't show Elvis's hips on TV in the sixties it went crazy. All of a sudden it was like, show Elvis's hips. We're going to walk around butt naked. The kids seem to just, just embrace this, this, this approach of openness that is so Emerson. It reminds me so much of, of Emerson saying, why should we have to look at, at God through the lenses that others have created? Why can't we have a direct relationship with the divine? Are we no better? Aren't we as, as worthy as the prophets of old? To have that kind of spiritual awakening, I mean, well, that's that was a, that a pretty last, That last part's a bit of a logical leap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But it's typically American. It, and, yes, and typically hippie. Uh, interesting. Um, so we talked about Tim Leary 
and you mentioned briefly Jim Morrison, but talk about the whole, like the whole age of Aquarius thing and the Aquarian gospel. And just that, that I just remember that I, uh, just growing up hearing that people were just fixating on this idea that was left over from the sixties. Yes. It's very interesting. It's, it's something that, that we first see it in Dane Rudger is, is in the area and, um, this idea that there's an Aquarian age coming is something that, that is, is going hand in hand with ideas like, uh, for example, there was an ad, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Platonist newspaper for a new community that was going to happen in California where they were going to study the esoterics arts. And it, it almost sounded like a description of what would later become the Philosophical Research Society. But this was really early in the, like the 1880s. And this was influenced, I think, in part by ideas that, that had grown up and that even Blavatsky embraced that California would be the place that the new root race would arrive and a new religion would be born there. And this Harold Bloom kind of caustically looked at this and he said, yeah, the religion that was born there is California Orphism, which is what he called the new age. Mm. And he, he didn't think much of it. So there's, there's this way that, that, the, the idea of the Aquarian age through astrology, but also just as a spiritual idea. And the Aquarian gospel of Jesus the Christ had a strong influence on that. And this, this is a weird story because there, there are certainly some tendencies amongst some of the people around the Aquarian gospel that we have to wonder about in, in, in the sense of, is there racism going on here? Is this just sort of what's going on at the time among people? Well, the, I mean, it's been shown pretty clearly that that you know, if you take those root, if you take those ideas back to theosophy, once you start talking about root races and things like this, you're in profoundly questionable waters. Absolutely, and and so now the, the creator of the Aquarian Gospel was somebody who had tradition going back to the Silver Legion, which was a a, a cult oriented fascist organization in America during World War II or just prior to it that thought Hitler was great. And they, the leader of the Silver Legion, they used to be called the Silver Shirts as well, were, was somebody that thought he should be president. And so one of the members of that society who actually owned a silver shirt wound up being the person who created the Aquarian Gospel. Really? And, mm-hmm. Okay, this is a good connection here. And so now what is the Aquarian Gospel after all? It's very likely the book by, by Natavovich, right? It's basically saying the same things. That book was already out. That book was, was written by somebody who claimed that they had seen manuscripts that claimed that Jesus had visited uh, Tibet and India. And <clears throat> so he, he wrote this into this very controversial book that undoubtedly influenced, there's just too many similarities. But the brilliance was to write this, these stories down in a format that resembled the Bible, that, that not only used the language of the Bible, but also had these, the, the actual typesetting of Bibles. Although and, to, to be fair, I mean, the Mormons got there first and uh, they did. And, and yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I don't, I, sorry, I don't want to interrupt the point. I want, I, I, let's bookmark that real quick. I just wanted to make the side point that 
one of the kind of one of one of the, the the things about talking about spirituality in America is that you can't really talk about the most successful examples of it um, for various reasons. And I'm thinking of, for instance, the Mormon Church or Scientology or Nation of Islam, where they're so uh, either controversial or litigious that it's very hard to talk about them uh, in any type of you know rational or open way. Uh, but those are you know, certainly can't be left out of the conversation, I don't think. Right. Yes, absolutely. Not not to interrupt your point, but... um, Well, so let's continue the story then of what happens with the Aquarian Gospel, which is that you mentioned the Nation of Islam. One of the organizations that that was influential for the Nation of Islam had a Bible that was called the Circle 7 Bible. And the Circle 7 Bible included in it whole chapters out of the Aquarian Gospel. And Circle Seven was was a separatist, I believe, organization. And and in a way, I wonder about about the authors of the Aquarian Gospel because of their history. And it's it's so typically American, so in a way, wonderful that that the Aquarian Gospel, which is very probably lifted from this other author, winds up being used by the very people that that perhaps these authors were trying to exclude and and now it becomes part of their bible and their belief system where they want to exclude people like the authors of the aquarian gospel <laughs> and i find this so american it's, yes and so it's 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 a a constant theme now i think and and people um, so much has grown from this Aquarian idea. I feel that a lot of the starseed movement is, is kind of an Aquarian age idea. And there's, there's a, a whole, I, there's a constant waiting, which is also very American throughout its history for this new age to begin. You now, think that's, Pluto you think that's a, you think that's a specifically American thing? No, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, in fact, it's, it's, all over the Rosicrucian manifestos and and the, that kind of expectation is all through Hermeticism. Um, so it's no, also it's not. The, it's also in the Book of Revelation. So yes, absolutely. Uh, it's a constant theme in in all religions, mm. but here I believe it it becomes a a kind of a business plan. <laughs> well, <laughs> That I mean, like, say no more. I mean, that that's in terms of describing religion in America, right? Exactly. That's great. Okay. Well, uh, I I want to talk about the seventies and eighties as well, and we can't we can't miss the wiling out on Mount Shasta. In fact, let's just start with that. I'm I'm super curious about that. Yeah. Wow. You know, I I had. Yeah. <laughs> Writing about, about for uh, people who don't know about this, I mean, maybe just like set the scene as to, you know, the, the turquoise silk, uh, 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 robes and whatnot. Right. Well, it's, it all starts with, um, a very strange scene where we have someone who is, is spiritually inspired and they're, they're out on Mount Shasta hiking is, is their way. And they run into a, young person who they say is is very beautiful young man who apparently is saint germain and saint germain gives them a sip of an elixir and saint germain says you're going to be my my 
designated representative in the world. And you're going to take the teachings out there. And so there is this society that grows up around them. And, and it's a very strange society in the sense that it's, it's a very insulated cult. And so, they're, they're, for instance, the colors red and black to them represent evil. And, and so they, they have these, these – they're supposed to, whenever they, they run into this kind of thing, they're supposed to basically curse it. And and okay. violet is the highest color, and they 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 will uh, use violet lightning or violet bombs uh, to to take away the evil black and red. Cool story. And, <laughs> and so it's a pretty high anxiety lifestyle. Well, if, story- I mean, if red and if you're if you're triggered by red and black, I mean, you're gonna have a bad bad time. <laughs> I hate to break it. Yes, to there's you. a story. There's actually a story. Common told, There's a story told about a, a this woman walking with a member of, of the, the group and, and they just see a dress in, in the window and the woman is abjuring the dress and cursing it, you know? So there's a point, yeah, I mean, there, there is a point to be fair where it's just like, okay, like we're verging into mental, mental illness here. And, uh, I, 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 pro- I shouldn't laugh because I mean, like we're, we're getting into some serious territory here when people are that far gone. Well, there's a, it's just a brainwashing element. And, and there's also, I think, apophenia is very much mm-hmm. there. I think that's mm-hmm. also a big part of QAnon. Absolutely. And it, when people yeah, talk about that concept for, for people who don't know about it. It's really important. Okay. Uh, apophenia is a compulsion for meaning that is, it often accompanies anxiety and trauma. And so in a traumatic society, like the one we're living in right now, where there's all kinds of frightening possibilities and there's deceit all around us and we don't know what to believe. When we fall into a certain belief system that for whatever reason agrees with, with our prejudices or our predilections and, and then we focus our full attention on it, we can be receive feelings of rebirth and reassurance that now we are hooked into everything. And what that means because of apophenia is that every single thing we see could be a message from some mm-hmm. divine mm-hmm. source. So mm-hmm. this is why in QAnon, they, they would look at something like, well, the president made this gesture mm-hmm. and that's clearly a message to us of this. And every single little thing, even billboards or a song on the radio. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that a song on the radio or a billboard may not bear a message for someone at a certain moment in time. Because people's lives have been changed by things as simple and humble as that, because at the right moment, they led to a realization. But this is a compulsion that is highly, it's, it's highly defensive. So people who do not believe with you become the enemy and are demonized. And people who do believe like you receive a, a kind of uh, treatment that, that could be said to resemble the the uh, idealized image of what churches are supposed to be like, where everybody's friendly and they bring casseroles for you. And, yeah. and they're so sweet and, and, and supportive. And people comment on how when you join the QAnon mentality and the, Jew, the QAnon community that you get that kind of feeling and that kind of welcome. From well, people. I mean, that's the same for, for any cult, you know, the love bombing mm-hmm. phase. Uh, and, yes, absolutely. And, yeah, and as you're speaking, I'm thinking. I mean, this is just how human beings are normally. Uh, it, it's just uh, uh, exaggerated to a pathological degree at times in uh, in the yes. cult environment. Interesting. Well said. Um, yeah, it's interesting as well. I'm thinking, just moving up through the 80s, 
I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this. There seemed to be a point, and I'm just thinking this because you were talking about tensegrity earlier. There was there seemed to be a point in the 80s and 90s where everything become became much more corporate. So now instead of you know pyramid power in the Aquarian gospel, we have neurolinguistic programming and uh, tensegrity maybe, and things became much more. Um, it took on a new. Uh, class of metaphors and now of course everything is is in computer and internet metaphor like i'm right. getting downloads is something that you right. hear people say all the freaking time right right and, and so and, and that's always been interesting to me but um yeah i'm curious so I, I maybe bring us up to the the current moment in terms of where you think things have come to and where they may be going oh it's so fascinating Social media and the internet in general have created such a new environment that is truly different from anything we've seen before. So in a sense, it's the invisible college of the Rosicrucians. And my book could not have been written without this because for it used to be no longer, unfortunately, but it used to be that Amazon allowed you to search any book that was on Amazon. All the academic books were searchable. Mm. That I couldn't have written this book otherwise. Isn't uh, Google Books? I think allows at least yes, some I, of that. Yes, limited, more yeah. limited. But Google Books used to be that way too. So between the two of them, and then some of the the like Academia.edu and some of the other sites like that, I was able to get access to re really expensive books and and to papers that otherwise I wouldn't have mm. ever heard of. And and also because of the internet, I was able to contact these people. And despite the the pessimism that I, I received from most people on the metaphysical side who said that, oh, you're not probably not going to get a very nice welcome from academia with your questions, I received no an incredible welcome. Them. <laughs> they were great. Oh, no, they, they were great. They, okay. They, I, I, should, I, should, I should take oh, that Oh, yeah. Back. No, they were wonderful, um, Jason. They, it, it's mind-blowing how generous they were. They time and sending me papers and, you know, I couldn't afford I a book. I take it back. I'm sorry. I plead for no, they were so cool. I'm, just, I'm encouraging you to check them out because okay. there's so many wonderful people there. I, I was I was thinking of just because you said the the experience of being dismissed by. I was thinking of other aspects of uh, the powers that be. Oh well, for sure. Yeah, that's that's a constant battle if you're an esoteric. Yeah, and and it's a constant battle for for academia, academia where they are studying the esoteric. They're they're also under the same kind of duress yeah. That that is not are. what I was reacting to. I was just reacting to the feeling of. You know, as I'm sure you you know well, it's like coming and and certainly coming from the background of working with Manly P. Hall. I mean, just like working on this material for decades and decades, and it's the most interesting thing in the world. And it's just like you're dismissed as if you're like, uh, you know, a, a juggler at a party or something like that. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, it's it is difficult. I mean, it's interesting to see the way that that the. I don't know who are we talking about here. It's not really the media. Some, I mean, it is, I guess it technically is the media. I, I had so many people tell me they read the book and they say uh, people are in the media and they say, "Oh my God, I love this book. I wish everybody could read it, mm. but there no one will ever talk about it where I work. Like no one would touch this with a ten foot pole." I think that that's the case, and 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 one of the one of my experiences, kind of doing this stuff more online is that the internet allows people anonymity and the ability to engage in stuff that they wouldn't be seen doing socially uh, otherwise. So since I kind of see the back end of who's consuming my material, it's it's pretty much everyone. And I don't think that that's new. I mean, I'm even thinking of, 
you know, the secret teachings of all ages ended up in a lot of like high places, you know, I think astronauts, politicians, things like that. So it's kind of like, and, and so esotericism, I feel is one of those open secrets where it's kind of like sex where it's like everyone's doing it, but no one's talking about it. Right. I think that's very true. And in fact, always has been in America. Hmm. It's just something that even, even down to this, that today in the popular imagination, we usually lump alchemy together with witchcraft and it's Halloween stuff. And when we think about somebody like Cotton Mather or, or the, the others who were uh, prosecuting and persecuting witches in, at Salem and, and other places in New England, we think of them as these very strict Christians. These guys were into the Hermetica. These guys were, were practicing alchemy. Cotton Mather. I mean, yeah. What the? Okay. You're blowing my yeah. mind here. This is so many, you're dropping so many, uh, uh, he found mind uh, bombs here in this pod- here, podcast. Cotton, cotton called, um, uh, John Winthrop, the younger, um, I've got to get it right. Um, oh man, it's slipping my mind. He, something like the, 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 not thrice greatest Hermes, but, but he, he referred to him explicitly as as in in a Hermes or Hermetic way in the eulogy that he wrote for him. Isn't this frustrating though? I mean, like I just kind of like a tangent on this where it's like, I'm sure you share the experience where you're you're into this stuff and everyone is just so dismissive and and like, oh yeah, like whatever. And it's like, oh yeah, you're into magic. It's like, yeah, me and every single other fucking person in history who you know about and has done anything. Yeah, it, it is a great, it is, as you said, the open secret, but it's, it's something that, that our society has been, been built to a degree to disempower. And, mm. um, I used to, um, Genesis, was, to, that was Genesis's main point, And I, maybe that's the deeper mm-hmm. point. Well, here's, here's, uh, to talk about the, the seventies and the eighties and onward, um, somebody that, that, that I love dearly, John Trudell, um, mm. he, uh, for your, if your listeners don't know who he was, he was a, a Nat- an indigenous activist and a, and a wonderful poet. And he was part of the uh, occupation of Alcatraz back in the 1960s. But we had some conversations where he talked about from, from his indigenous point of view about what he saw as a continuous string of, of what he called Reichs. And, and that there was a corporate Reich that mm. was currently in control. Damn. Okay. And All right. He, he felt that communism was a kind of Reich, that, that capitalist industrialized uh, the so-called democracy was a kind of Reich, and that these, these Reichs were all experimenting with mind control and with, with population control. And he felt that um, he called it mining and he felt that the belief systems, especially the belief in apocalypse and, and the use of, of these, these conformist religions was to create, to, to mine our mental energy, to, to make us willing to put ourselves to work in positions doing things that if we had a soul, we wouldn't do. Yeah, that's, I love that. I mean, I don't love it. You know what I mean? That's, I love that mm-hmm. point. Um, I think that's totally true. And I think that's always been true. I mean, it's so hard. I mean, William Burroughs used to write about this a lot, looking, talking about Egypt and, and the, uh, the Egyptian and Aztec cultures. 
and just looking at these things and saying like, look, man, these things are so obviously fucking control systems, like the Egyptian mythology that people make so much of. It's like, it's exactly what you're just saying. I mean, this is this mythology that is created by a priesthood caste, um, to get slaves to be slaves. And it's just the same now, because that's why no one wants to think about this point. Because it's like, you look at Egypt and like all this pomp and circumstances, pomp and circumstance, and temple worship and rituals to a large degree, theater for slaves, right? But nobody wants to think about that, because then they have to think about like, well, that never really changed. You know, it's like, it's, it's so obviously right. the case now as well, where so much of what we're shown by the media is like this punch and Judy, uh, punch and Judy show that really has like no bearing whatsoever on the, on the real issues. Um, right. So I love what DeBorge said about it. He, he had the saying that, uh, he said everywhere, the young are offered love or a refrigerator <laughs> and everywhere they choose the refrigerator. Well, refrigeration <laughs> is a profound uh, thing. That <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, I, I actually, as, as I said it, I thought, well, no, let's not underestimate refrigeration. Right, right, right. I mean, but on the other yeah. hand, we know what he means. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if it's, well, I mean, obviously comfort can be a way that people are controlled, but I think it's deeper than that. I think it is, it, I think that what you're saying, I mean, the experimentation with mind control that is nothing new. I mean, people have these sinister ideas about the Illuminati and the New World Order. It's just like, it's a lot simpler and worse than that. It's just like power at its root is interested in power. And mm-hmm. I feel that all, probably all, you know, as we know, studying history, all societies in the world have been built on the back of a slave labor force. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot that goes into this culture of, you know, playing this kind of three card money game with phrases and terms and shuffling things around so that it doesn't seem that so despite it being exactly what it is it does not seem that way and that is a magical thing and and magic as a practice you know uh, if you do it yourself can be hopefully perhaps a, a liberation from that and that's one of the reasons i think i agree with you it's it tends to be pushed to the sidelines because they right. want to keep the power for themselves it's yes. not quite that simple well, it, but you know it threatens hierarchy to begin with. And, and then it, it, it opens the floodgate. I mean, my, I think my book kind of shows it's part of the problem with, with esoterica, especially in America, is that if you let one little bit of it through, you've got a whole crowd busting through the door. Mm. So you, yeah, you, cause people you, want it, you know, that it's, it's, yes. it's a, I think it's an, it's a deep human need. I mean, obviously the need for meaning is the deepest need there is. Uh, but and also there's so much, uh, there's so much fascinating exploration. It's it's. I used to get the feeling one of the, my favorite things to do when I worked for Manley Hall was just to walk into his vault where he had all his best books and manuscripts and we would have lunch in there and he would answer my questions. And uh, I was working on a bibliography of his alchemical collection at the time under his direction. And when I would look at those books, I would think, wow, like every one of these people was risking their lives most likely to write this stuff down. And they were daring enough to, to explore this, this frontier of spirituality and consciousness that was, was not even allowed at the time. And, and so to look around at all of these volumes and all of these manuscripts and to feel the sense of all these authors who, who had to live in fear of being discovered as they tried to 
experiment with and understand and then capture for posterity, for us, these, these incredible experiences that they had. And so a huge amount of our, of our heritage, not just as Americans, but as human beings, has been, been sort of kept from us. And yeah, yeah. Um, I was just reading uh, one of the academics that I would, I would say is, is exemplary is uh, Walter Honograff. And he was talking about how um, he had talked to someone or was reading a book actually by a scholar in Islam who was arguing that, that there was something, some huge amount of, of materials that have never been explored by scholars of Islam hmm. that are occult materials. Hmm. And where, there's no where is telling, this located? <laughs> right? And there's no telling how much of what we think is forever lost might be in there. That's phenomenal. And that's phenomenal, particularly when you think that in a lot of ways, uh, you, know, Western ex- you know, Western European exchange with Islam is where a lot of this stuff comes from in the first place. Like yes, Sufism and alchemy absolutely. and things like that. That's fascinating. I got to ask though, I mean, what was, what was Manly Hall like? What was working for him and hanging out with him like? He was delightful. Um, such a, uh, a sweet and humorous and generous human being. Um, uh, it's unbelievable to me that he was, <laughs> he took a huge risk on me because I had no education in the area. I often say when I first met him, he he was sitting at his desk and he pushed at me this big stack of paper that was a galley for an alchemical bibliography. And I didn't know what a galley was or what alchemy was or what a bibliography was. All, all my experiences up until that point, and there were very few of them that had anything to do with spirituality, were more in the area of Crowley and Austin Spare. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was doing things like like grabbing William Gray's Tree of Evil because I wanted to practice the evil side. And <laughs> that's this a, was all that's about, a great book. Uh, I love that book, is. actually, not it for is. the evil part, but just because that book, uh, it's a profoundly pessimistic and cynical and conservative book. Uh, and I think he's right about a lot of this stuff in there. He has a fascinating, yeah, that, that point of view applied to Kabbalah is, is really something. And, Very and he, he frustrated me because he didn't really present it in a way that I could use it <laughs> the way I had hoped to. Right. And I was, I was basically doing all this because I wanted power. I was somebody who felt I had no social contract because of yes. my childhood. And, and I, I, was, I had a band that was a nihilist band, and I just wanted, wanted it to be successful. I wanted to be powerful. I wanted to spread my my nihilist uh, beliefs. And, and so when I, when he pushed this alchemical biblio in front of me, I mean, I, unbelievable. I mean, I, I actually tried to argue that I, I couldn't do it several times. And, and he said that he would guide me. He would, he would actually every morning give me work to do and then check my work in the evening and I could ask him questions. And it was too amazing an opportunity not to take. And to my shock, I was able to do the work, mm. And we became good friends. I also worked as his screener, which was an amazing experience because he was, in a way, the last hope for many people. And so he was constantly how, receiving how do you, letters. How do you mean that? Well, people who had lost their sanity, perhaps, or lost themselves in some way through everything from ceremonial magic to spiritualism would, would, or I mean, anything, they would contact him when they were absolutely desperate, when psychology had failed them and their church had failed them and other spiritual teachers had failed, they would contact him in desperation. And 
he he was limited and at the time I knew him, he was in his 80s and he was limited in the amount of time that he could give to situations like that. So he trained me and then then also uh, my wife, Tamara Lucid, to be his screeners. And that was a, an intense experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, to see the damage that can be done and and to see that what what it did to people and and to have to tell people well no i'm afraid he can't help you and to be the one to do that i mean he really was trying to show me something that i've never forgotten and when you say the damage he, that could be done do you mean by drugs or or what do you mean all of it drugs um by misapplying the principles mm-hmm. by by expo- you know, trying to do things for the wrong reasons um just all the classic missteps that people take when they play with power i wonder if you can um, give us some examples just because i what, what you're saying is so important and it's always glossed over always by people who talk about this and um to some extent i mean i get letters from people all the time who are in desperate straits um, and I am also extremely limited in what I can do, but, um, but people, yeah, that, that, that is real. I mean, like the, there are casualties and I, I, I would love if you yes. could talk about that and share some examples because people do need to hear that. Okay. Um, well, examples would include people who explore spiritualism and then they, they open doors to entities that torment them. People who have the same experience through the use of ceremonial magic and through they use the banishment ritual and such, but they, there are entities that, that attach to them and they, they can't get rid of them and they're tormenting them. And are these entities, are these psychological complexes, what's actually going on there is remains an open question, but, but the, there's a breakdown of the integrity of the person's psyche and they have split in some way into this tormenting presence that they they try to battle and then this tormented self that is the victim and so in fact when i asked him once how would you change your teaching like if you had it all to do again would you change anything and he said that he would underemphasize the the hidden masters and and mm-hmm. the Rosicrucian initiates and uh, many of the theosophical approaches, and that he would recommend to people that before they begin practicing spirituality of any kind, but especially something like spiritualism or ceremonial magic, magic that they acquire some kind of psychological knowledge of themselves. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I mean, Israel Regardi said, do a urotherapy first. And of course, no, no one ever does that, but um, right. sound that advice. Is, and, and, and there's no reason not to in the sense that, that there's so many wonderful books that can be read that can help one to accomplish that. There's so many psychologists, whether you're talking about Jung or, or I mean, just many choices, depending on what one's proclivities are, and who can help you to get a better understanding of self. And, and, it, and also, when things go wrong, can possibly help you to understand what has happened, because so much of it is naivete and inexperience. And as you know, as an experienced practitioner, it takes years to really know your way around yourself. Yeah. And, yeah. and yourself is the prism through which you're viewing the rest of it. And so Yeah, it takes a long get, time to really get that also. I mean, you can hear that intellectually, but it, that takes time. Right. It's hard. To, it, it takes time to live it. And so I ran into people who they're they were obsessed into doing things that ruined their lives or 
uh, there were spirits that tormented them that so that they couldn't sleep and it, it wound up ruining their ability to have a job. And they, they, I mean, one of them wound up homeless. That's pretty extreme. I mean, but all the, I mean, in, in a lot of those cases, you do have to, I mean, you have to address underlying, ment- potential underlying mental illness also. Well, I think that's, yeah. that is always, I, I think that the, what happens is, is a kind of amplification. So I don't think that yeah. the healthy people are being being uh, destroyed by these practices. I think that people who already have issues yeah. are going into practices that amplify them. Yeah, and I agree with that. And and I think for that reason, it's so important to emphasize that, uh, uh, you know, spirituality is not going, it's not, it's not a way to fix yourself and is not certainly, absolutely not a way to address, um, you know, mental disturbance or, or mental illness. You know, there's, there's professionals for that. And luckily we have... I think much, much, much better tools in our culture now, uh, although they're stretched to the breaking point past COVID, post COVID, uh, than we did a hundred years ago, or even like, you know, after world war two, or like, you know, let's, let's be honest. A lot of people were turning to things like spiritualism or new thought, or even Scientology as a form of self-treatment, self, you know, self, uh, mental health, uh, uh, treatment. And, and that's not necessarily a good idea. I don't think it is a good idea at all, actually. Right. I'll uh, tell you one thing that I noticed about many of them, which is, I think, a hangover of, of mainstream American culture, which is that they, they would become obsessed with the approach that they took as being the only way. Mm. And so instead of sampling various approaches and realizing that that a lot of this is is in a sense metaphorical they were taking things very literally and i i, I there was like a sense of i i'm doing yeah. something wrong because i'm not doing exactly the way i'm supposed to do it that's, a, that's, that's a, a red flag. the way it's supposed to be done and so this creates anxiety and and i'm always reminded by um speaking of manly hall he was one of the first to write about Shingon Buddhism, huh. uh, one of the first in English. And, and the founder of Shingon, um, Kukai, I, I has a quote that I just love, which is, do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the men of old, seek what they sought. Mm, that's great. I love that. I love and that. I think that that really helps because it, it helps to reduce some of that anxiety. And also it's, it's something I learned from Manly Hall is like, look, if you're, if you're, sojourn in spiritualism is creating terrible anxiety for you, then leave it and maybe yeah. try Zen or try something, something else, a pietism that, that see if that, that makes you, how that makes you feel. I really like that. We have that. that luxury now. I really like that. It, it also opens you to, to reassessing your tool set. It's like, well, you know, if you're just going for the goal instead of poss- you know, potentially these old moribund methods, it's like, well, what are the tools that are available to you to achieve your your goals? I mean, there there are things that people didn't have access to. Yeah. Uh, so I love that. What what would Manly Hall tell people though who kind of came to him in a state of panic or crisis? Well, some of them, some of them, he had he had these these like little home cures for some things. So, for example, one that I uh, he would sometimes let me listen into these sessions so I could learn what to say and. One of them was somebody who had uh, opened a door to some sort of a, a ghost or entity that was haunting the house. And he used a very simple system. He said, um, get yourself a red light bulb and a blue light bulb. And he said, um, two lamps, turn on the red lamp, 
Look around the room, look around at the shadows, feel all the fear that you're feeling. And he said, now at the same time, turn off the red lamp and turn on the blue one. And he said, the room will be cleansed. <laughs> so I asked him afterwards, well, is that, what is this? Is this light frequency stuff? Or is this just something you're giving them to do to make them feel better? And he just said, it's something that I've, I've used for people that works. And he said, I don't know if it's because they believe in me. And so because I said it, it's going to work or if there's something about it intrinsically. But this is something I found that has helped people who are suffering from this situation. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it definitely dispels. I mean, that's a way to dispel the shadows and the darkness and, and things mm -hmm. that you're symbolically he, afraid of. That, that's interesting. Yes. And he would also say, he would of, often remind people that, that nature is your teacher, that mm -hmm. your life is indeed your teacher. So he would, he would say, instead of feeling like there's no help anywhere and that you're, you're bereft in this universe uh, that's rolling on without you, that in fact, the universe is surrounding you with, with information, with teachers, with mm. opportunities. And if you can just calm down enough, it's like something that Max Heindel used to say when people used to ask him about, well, how come my relative went on and there's no communication and we're Rosicrucians? Shouldn't there be some kind of proof of survival? And Heindel would say, you know, if, if you throw a, pond, a, a stone into a pond, can you see the stone when the pond is rippling? No. But when the pond quiets, then you can see the stone. Mm. And he would say, they, they can't contact you while you're so desperate for the contact. Yeah, I think looking, you know, slowing down and, and paying attention to what's around you is, is uh, it's what it's all about. Uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. That's a lot more profound I, than it sounds, I think. It is. It's very, it's so true, though. It's, it's right around you. That the simple, daily, humble moments that we cherish, that we, that we take, and we constantly uh, think are going to be there forever. And, and in, instead of cherishing them by the moment and appreciating what amazing gifts they are, appreciating life, we tend to run off chasing things that our mind presents. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, I think we're coming, we've passed our, our two hour mark. Um, I think that was a great conversation though. I, I'm really great grateful to you for, for going into so much detail and depth. And the book is American metaphysical religion, esoteric and mystical traditions of the new world by Ronnie Pontiac. And, and let us know where we can, uh, get the book. I assume it's on Amazon and, and all of that and yeah, where, where people can all find out. Barnes and Nobles. I know Inner Traditions likes, I think, to have you buy it from them. And, oh, they get more. And, but, it, yeah. but if you have a local store, it might be there and you can certainly order it through them. It's always great to support local businesses. It is. And yeah. I apologize in advance for the price. I didn't set it. I don't know why it's Well, that it's a big much, book. I mean, you've, you're pushing, yeah, you're over, you're pushing 600 pages. Um, where can people find out more about you as well? I just say go to Google and put in Ronnie Pontiac and you'll find music and films that we've, uh, my wife and I have uh, produced documentary films and um, she actually just uh, did one that was nominated. She associate produced a film documentary that was nominated for an Emmy last year that was about the women who are the leaders at Standing Rock. It's a really beautiful oh, film. Oh, lovely. That's and then you'll find our writing and, and all that. So yeah, just any search engine and you'll be able to find stuff. All right. Well, thank you very much and wishing you great success with the book.
Oh, thank you. This is really a great interview. I really appreciate it. And it's such thank a pleasure you. to meet you at long you last. You too. You too. All right. Thanks, Ronnie. Talk to you. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.